Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 17th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about the stars of the baseball playoffs, among them Clayton Kershaw and Kenley Jansen, Javier Baez, Francisco Lindor, Maybe a little Edwin Encarnacion digression, as one does. We'll also discuss why the NFL's ratings are down in 2016, and the baseball pioneer Isla Borders will join us to discuss Pitch, the new TV show about the first woman to play in Major League Baseball. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and outside, which is relevant to the Isla Borders pitch situation. It is. Hello, Stefan. Hi. <laughs> it's relevant. She Try- pitched two years after I wrote that book in the Northern League. So I wasant there for Deeply Isla relevant. Borders. So it's You paved the it's way. Pre relevant. You paved the it's way. Pre relevant. Wild and outside, you should be proud of it, but we only mention it when it's directly germane to mm-hmm. the issue at hand. And I have to un- mm-hmm. I have to think it has something to do with your fee structure, for your remuneration <laughs> for when people buy that book. <laughs> it doesn't enrich is it currently you as much. In, is it in print? It is no longer in print. But if people are interested, they can buy it on oh, their, there, there their are, favorite used there are book websites. plenty of copies available. I think you can still order it on Amazon. Sure. Okay. Just because it's not being printed, it doesn't mean there are still not existing copies. They have a whole factory dedicated to it in Duluth. It's bringing uh, back great jobs. To Thunder, Thunder Bay, too, Canada. Mike Pesca is here. He's the host of the Gist Slate's Daily Podcast. Yes. What, what were you up to kind of circa? When did you write that book, Stephen? 1995. What were you up to in 1995? Mike? I was writing civil service exams for the government. You could buy really? that too on Amazon, <laughs> <laughs> the Nassau County government. Yeah. Really? If you ever wanted to become a tree cutter one or tree cutter two, perhaps you answered some of my civil service questions. Do you remember any of the questions? 
Uh, no, I mean, some of them were, you know, basic math questions, but I would try to insert my friend's names in there. (laughs) (laughs) Stump diameters and that sort of thing. You did. You had to do a lot to keep yourself mentally, (laughs) mentally, uh, firing at the old civil service test. It was psycho. It was, uh, the field of psychometrics. I was a psychometrician for a while. I really feel that was your true calling. Mm -hmm. Some people, a lot of people think that, that radio yeah. You really found your place, but civil service exam construction. I feel yeah. like we lost a great one. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, Whimsy Watch had a couple of suggestions on Twitter. Uh, one uh, query is it too obvious to mention Odell Beckham and his relationship with the Kickers Net? I think it's just the right amount of obvious. Mm-hmm. That's perfect whimsy. Well, my I friends. was thinking that we might have to do uh, Whimsy Watch Odell Beckham in the Net edition and <laughs> Whimsy Watch non Beckham Net related. It is front page of the New York Post. He's pr- him proposing <laughs> to the Net. Okay. Did he propose? Uh, did he, he propose? He did propose. He got down on one knee. So is this obviously it's taking it too far in a delightful, whimsical way? Or is this he did something stupid and he won't let it go? Ladder. I, I, and, and he did it three times yesterday, didn't he? Oh, yeah. I mean, twice. He scored two touchdowns. Yeah. There was probably some off-camera canoodling. <laughs> right. He was spotted at the uh, hot nightclub La Vie. Um, <laughs> Elaine's. Yeah. You know just, there's an issue when <laughs> Stefan thinks the kicking net is getting too much screen time. Yeah. So Golden Tate with the cheerleaders oh, the is a little hacky. No, I loved it. You don't think taking the pom-poms is kind of played at this point? Well, he did say that he knew that Richard Sherman did it, but he said he only realized that afterwards. I think it's great. <laughs> that I loved. Is that is that going to about- get him fined? It could get him, you know, because uh, fraternizing with the cheerleaders is explicitly banned on most NFL teams. Yeah. It's just encouraging them to do well in their jobs. But if you look at the film, he was kind of out of step with them. So was it really fraternizing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, last one, Prince Amukamara's jersey misspelled. That's always fun. Spelled Amuakmara. It's hard to spell. (laughs) Admiral (laughs) Akbar. Complicated name. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh, In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we're going to check in with Slate writer and beer vendor Justin Peters about what it's been like to work at Wrigley during this year's playoffs. He was at uh, the Division Series games. He was at Game One and Game Two of the LCS. Um, And Slate Plus, there's never been a better time, my friends. It's Slate's 20th anniversary. For a limited time, we're offering 30% off an annual membership. Um, Maybe Justin could cut you a deal. Um, Maybe if you pass him a 10, he'll he'll give you an extra one back on the Goose Island. Um, But it's just $35 a year for Slate Plus for a limited time, 30% off the annual membership. And you get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more other cool stuff. So if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before the offer goes away. It's slate.com slash hangupplus. Onward to the baseball playoffs. The Dodgers' Clayton Kershaw has been the best regular season pitcher in baseball for the last six years, winning three Cy Young Awards during that span. He missed much of this year, though, with a back injury. And in past years, he pitched very poorly by his standards in the playoffs. After his first two starts in this year's division series against the Nationals, one of which was on short rest and really helped his team. But um, even so, Kershaw had a 4.83 career postseason ERA. That's more than double his 2.37 mark for the regular season. But he came on in relief in the winner-take-all Game 5 against the Nats on one day of rest. He got the last two outs. He became a playoff hero 
And on Sunday night at Wrigley Field, he held the Cubs to no runs, two hits, and seven scoreless innings in the Dodgers' one nothing win against the Cubs. He had an ERA after the sixth inning in the playoffs, Mike, of something like 28. Yes, but that's not a thing. <laughs> There's no post-sixth <laughs> inning ERA. We could calculate it. It's a thing. It. I just said it. I just I said it. I know it exists, it's, but it should. It's not on the civil service exam? It's for, sort uh, of like, what about uh, his ERA against even-numbered batters on the eighth and earlier? No, it suggests that he got tired. tired. Yes, yes. There, there's, there's some real-world extrapolation okay. that you can make that okay. on the third time third through the time lineup. Third time through the order. That's the that, title that of, of, his, of his country album. So do you have any... Um, modifications to make to your uh, statements from last week, Mr. Pesca, about uh, certain pitchers being good or not in the in the postseason. I did not think Kershaw was one of those pitchers who was bad in the postseason. Um, oh, is that so? Let's yes. play that mm. tape back right now. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think you did. Yeah. I think you didn't. Say I that. thought that was mostly a couple of bad pitches to a couple of Cardinals a few years ago, and if you looked at. Uh, you know, his bullpen letting him down this year. I mean, if you strike out 10 in five or six innings, that is a good, well, I don't know. I guess you could be Michael Pineda or who's that guy, Ray, who does those things. But no, Kershaw is a good pitcher. <laughs> Kershaw is a very, very good pitcher who has pitched very, very good in the postseason, but he's hasn't pitched great in the postseason and actually is the best pitcher in baseball over the last few years. So it hasn't seemed like that in the postseason. Madison Bumgarner has. Uh, I would say that the two-out save, which was being hailed, I mean, they did advance in that series, the two-out save, which was being hailed as, you know, the greatest accomplishment in the rehabilitation of Clayton Kershaw, please. I mean, it was great that Kershaw put his hand up and said, yeah, I'm ready to go. Also bailing his manager out and didn't really have a great plan post-Kenley Jansen. But this was the game where you're like, this guy is dominant. This guy is unhittable. This guy's fantastic. That said, he left after the seventh. I'm not faulting him. That's what pitchers are supposed to do. A brilliant, dominant performance. And had the bullpen let him down. And a two-inning save from Jansen isn't the most usual thing. The bullpen did not let him down. Had the bullpen let him down, we'd be saying all these silly things about Clayton Kershaw. But I'm still willing Mike, to say, yeah. You went with the two-syllable police. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I policed it. You know, I'm trying to <laughs> channel my inner Valley girl who might be a fan of Kershaw. So yeah, Kershaw, Clint Kershaw, very good pitcher. What did you make of that two out um, save by Kershaw? I mean, the, so the accomplishment there was twofold or maybe threefold. The first was that he pitched in game one and game four as a starter, which is kind of unheard of except for, you know, Bumgarner in the last few years in the modern age of baseball where we believe in things like rest mm. and, and pitch counts. But then coming back after game four to pitch in relief, a guy who's not a reliever, and it's the baseball equivalent of hero ball, right? right. You put the ball in the hands of your best player in very adverse circumstances. And, you know, the second part of that is Daniel Murphy – was the guy who was coming to the plate for the Nationals, who hit two home runs off Kershaw in the playoffs last year, has been just insane in clutch situations this year. And he got Murphy to pop out. Like that was a that was a historic kind of great baseball playoff matchup. And Kershaw won it. These are the small sample sizes that make players into legends. Whenever I see a starting pitcher trot in to, for a heroic performance, <laughs> I think of Jack McDowell. Um, that is my go-to recessive memory, bring in the starter to save the game, McDowell against Seattle in, what was it, 1995 for the Yankees? Um, 
So it, it, it seems – That didn't go well? It did not go well. No, I believe Edgar Martinez hit a ball. Yeah. And Ken Gurfrey Jr. scored a winning run. Um, I don't think the Yankees were winning at the time, though. So I, I, I understand the hero ball aspect of it. I don't understand the necessarily the logic of it um, from a managerial perspective. Yes, it worked in this situation. But in terms of how players are conditioned to perform and when they are expected to play and how much rest they're accustomed to. I mean, Kershaw even said – he was tired because the playoffs totally throw you off your rhythm. And this was after the game last night when he was talking to Ken Rosenthal, um, that the, the, the hardest part of the playoffs is that the entire dynamic of your routine is off. And that's fine. Look, it's not as if professional athletes shouldn't be able to adapt to their routine being off, but it does demonstrate some sort of psychological variance on the behavior of managers and on the behavior of players that are willing to say, I want to do this now. I totally disagree. I think that... Look, you know what you have in Kershaw. If the ball's popping in the glove in the bullpen, he says, I think I could go. Okay, warm up. Let's see what you got, which is a little bit of a dicey decision. But of course, if you don't win, it doesn't matter if he if the warm up doesn't go well. So he warms up. And it's like, look, he's hitting his 90s. The ball has mm-hmm. movement. Then at that point, what's to lose? And Jansen was gassed and you had no other options. I think that Roberts. Oh, did so, you have no other options? I mean, you had pitchers, but you didn't have any other good <laughs> options. You had guys who could throw the ball, but he burned Hill after eight outs mm-hmm. uh, and weirdly let him hit in uh, an earlier inning. So I don't know, he didn't do great there. Blanton pitched well, but I thought, I mean, I think most people would think he was brought in too early. So basically what he did, what Roberts did was made the entire game just kind of suck it uh, from like uh, grab the ninth inning and pulled it into the seventh. And then when you're in the ninth, oh my God, you need an option. So Kershaw says, maybe, maybe me, skip. It's like, all right, let's see. And it worked out great. So I don't think it was a bad managerial decision. I think it was once you could demonstrate that Kershaw had action on his fastball, that it was the only thing to do. I don't know what he would have done without it. Right. No, I don't think it was a bad managerial decision at all. And frankly, as a fan, that's great to watch. You want to see unusual arrangements of players in high leverage or or high pressure situations. So it's great fun to watch. It definitely is a little bit riskier because, look, uh, starting pitchers do warm up differently. They do prepare differently to pitch, um, to come into any situation. There is a physical aspect to throwing a baseball 90 plus miles an hour multiple times in a short period. There is some risk in having someone like Clayton Kershaw do this. Yeah, I kind of tend to become more of a cranky, crusty old man when it comes to pitchers in the playoffs. And I was this way about Matt Harvey last year. The entire premise of the sport is to win a championship. And so the players should be gassed and tired and extended Mm -hmm. to the max that they can, you know, you don't want to throw someone out there thinking that they're going to get injured, but you do want to have your best players go to exhaustion in the playoffs to try to win a championship or else why are you mm-hmm. why are we watching the sport and why are right. you playing the sport let's talk about Javier Baez of the Cubs and first Francisco. let's talk about Jack McDowell it was a two run double by Edgar Martinez in the bottom of the 11th so yeah it sorry to hear that that's no, the yeah, yeah let's get let's get that out. all right Javier Baez of the Cubs the second baseman and Francisco Lindor the shortstop for the Indians have been 
two of the of the biggest position player stars of the playoffs. Um, Baez, his manager Joe Madden, has talked about him like he's Magic Johnson. Um, that his mind—that's how quickly it works. Um, we've seen that with his steal of home on a botched suicide squeeze play. We saw where he intentionally dropped a soft liner to get a double play instead of getting one out. Um, it wasn't just, even a botched suicide squeeze. It was a. It was there was no sign. Baez admitted that he screwed up. Okay, but he still managed. He still to, managed to steal home. <laughs> his mind works like Magic Johnson, and that he threw an incredibly bad pass, then caught it himself, and uh, you know threw it into the basket. Um, he is incredibly fun to watch. Great defensive player, and the guy that he actually reminds me of was watching Tyron Matthew, the Honey Badger, play for LSU, like. A, a slot defensive back, somebody who you don't imagine being in a position where you can just wreck the entire team and wreck the entire game by just disrupting everything another team does. And when somebody can do it from second base as a player who had like an OPS plus of 102 this year, it's just fantastically fun to watch. Lindor for the Indians has done it in a more conventional way. Great defensive plays at shortstop, hitting home runs, had the game-winning hits in games one and two at the LCS. I mean, Baez's backstory is also, I think, adds to the sort of growing legend with this guy. I mean, his versatility is something that Joe Madden has talked a lot about, his ability to play short, second, third, left field. He can play anywhere. He only started 38 games at second base all season. He only started six games at second base in September. He is someone that that clearly has the the sort of rare physical gift and the sort of extreme like on the on the far end of the fast twitch muscle fiber spectrum for the position that he plays. Watching him tag someone, I mean I've never felt like wow, that's really amazing. Like look how quickly he caught the ball and at the same time dropped the tag. He's beautiful. And if you look at why the Cubs are great, I mean, they had so much in place last year, but I think Baez is the biggest upgrade because they went and got Jason Hayward and a great defensive player, but I mean, he's totally killed him. Uh, Fowler was there. Fowler got a little better, but he's the same guy. So here's Baez in the lineup doing all those things that maybe we can't quantify, but you want to say spark plug. But if you look at how smart he is and how he plays uh, defense and doing things like once the infield fly rule isn't called and it wasn't a bad umpiring decision on a line drive not to call it but he backed up pretty much a foot let the ball drop and uh, turned what could have been an out into a double play just because he's aware and alert and sometimes players screw up so he missed the sign and broke for home but he beat it out because he's aware and alert little asterisk I do think that if in football we uh, say, well, that's an interception because his arm was going forward. But no, that's a fumble, even though the ball was in the air because his arm was still going backward, which happened to Dak Prescott in the game. There seems to be a difference between the kind of steal that is pitcher throws home, catcher throws to the base the player is attempting, as opposed to pitcher throws home, and then there's like a busted rundown. Once the catcher throws to a base that the player is leaving, that should be called something other than a steal. It's almost like a, a busted pitch out. Put stolen base in scare quotes. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. It's an inside the park stolen base. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I forget who said this, but I think it's right that there is a kind of Jose Fernandez-esque, you know, personality yeah. with Baez and that he's just that fun to watch, that he brings a kind of energy 
to a game that can sometimes be stolid. So he's he's awesome. With the Indians, I wonder what you guys think, because they have two stars, Lindor and Corey Kluber. And this has not been a team that has gotten any kind of national attention this year, even as they've had a really successful year. And in previous years where they've been down, it does seem to have affected the you know star power of these two players nobody really nobody who's not a baseball fan will say like Corey Kluber that's like a really famous sports player in the world the won the si- <laughs> I know but do you think anyone at Slate other than us like knows who Corey Kluber is <laughs> and if we co- said that his name was <laughs> Glory sure Kluber right would we be corrected Glory Kluber yes Glory yeah, Kluber yeah. is his name and Lindor also c- came in with this class of shortstops you know with he finished second in the AL Rookie of the Year race to um, Carlos Correa of the Astros, who I think has gotten a little bit more publicity um, than he has. So I don't know. Like, I don't know if even the Indians make it to the World Series if these guys will become, you know, famous, if they'll become big stars. I guess Lindor is really young and has a good He's 22 pers- and Baez is 23. And I think that's the other thing to think about here. Look, they haven't been in the big leagues very long. I mean, someone like Baez is playing all these different positions um, on a very good team with a lot of bigger name players. And as for the for the Indians, I think, yes, if they make it to the World Series, people will know them better. But, well, here's the thing about Cleveland is that everybody pitied them because they hadn't won a championship in so long. Then the Cavs won. And then if they play the Cubs in the series when the Cubs haven't won since 1908, it's like 1948. 48. Like, gives yeah. a crap. I mean, come on. Yeah. Um, like yesterday. I have no interest or in the Indians or sympathy for them uh, in this in this broader <laughs> sports context. Well, sympathy. Like, wow, Cle- wow, the Cleveland baseball team has won a long time. So long-suffering. Wow. The important thing about sports and success is that some guy (laughs) 800 miles away has sympathy based on an abstract notion (laughs) of them. Um, One of the things complicating the Indians from becoming household names are the fact that they play baseball by the rules well, which is you don't have to start the same guy in every position all the time. So they have a bunch of players who stats-wise and maybe notoriety-wise aren't great. But if you just consider the Cleveland Indians left fielder as an institution, or if you consider the Cleveland Indians first baseman as such, it's like, wow, because they play platoons better than anyone, okay? And then if you look at their bullpen, how they use matchups, and they're the smartest with using Miller in the right position, you know, uh, sometimes Sometimes in the fifth inning, sometimes in the seventh inning, um, getting so many outs in uh, game two. And so we'll add it all up. And it means, oh, my gosh, they might be the smartest run team. So when you have a team where you can't identify stars except for Clory Cooper, uh, Terry Francona maybe becomes the star. And then maybe it becomes like a college basketball situation where you kind of forget the players. But it's the coach who is uh, the guy that you glom onto. Who knows? By the way. The Indians have been winning these close games. Are we going to mention the Blue Jays at all? Yeah, I was going to say, I suspect the Blue Jays are going to hang a 10-2 to loss on them because when they win, they score 10 runs. So maybe we'll be uh, not singing the praises of Coco Crisp, but Edwin Encarnacion. Yeah, I I saw some analysis of the Indians. It's like, they've got this one great starter, Corey Kluber, and they just fill in around him with, you know— journeyman inning eating starters like Josh Tomlin. They've really figured out how to, how that works for them. It's like, yeah, really uh, 
figured out how to get bad starting pitchers to like have a few successful games. Innings. Well, great, a few successful great strategy. innings even, and then go to a bullpen that includes Andrew Miller, who's been yeah. incredible. And Jose Bautista of the Blue Jays was complaining about the strike zone in the first two games right. of the ALCS. They've got Josh Donaldson, who was the reigning MVP. He might win MVP again this year, right, Mike? Uh, I Yeah, he might. I mean, just because people don't like to vote for Mike Trout when they should. That's yeah. true. And Edwin Encarnacion, who likes to round the bases after hitting great home runs uh, while holding an imaginary parrot. Um, so they've got this great um, you know, home run <laughs> hitting team. But I also just saw a factoid. Do we still say factoid? We can. That they had the worst slugging percentage of a team in baseball against curveballs. We shouldn't tell – nobody tell the Indians that. But who? Because otherwise, who the really, otherwise the Blue Jays just won't get a hit. Who really throws curveballs anymore? That's not fair. <laughs> nobody could. Nobody tell anyone that the Blue Jays can't hit a curveball. What was that Clint Eastwood movie? Fair. Blue Jays against the curve. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We talked about the Blue Jays. If you were to grade we, them we on a curve, that grade would be an F. Yes. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So the ratings are in for the Sunday night football game between the Colts and the Texans on NBC. NBC Sports tweeted out that it got a 9.0 slash 15 in the overnights. That means that NBC won the night in primetime. Hooray. So what do those numbers actually mean? Well, according to the TV Sports Ratings Twitter account, it means that NBC's Sunday Night Football was down 38% from week six last year when it was the Patriots playing the Colts. And that's been the storyline from the early part of the NFL season is that ratings are way down. The MMQB reported last week that the ratings were down 13%. There have been articles in The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, all about why are NFL ratings down. And nobody has a single explanation. None of the writers, none of the sources, um, nobody in the league. Um, but Derek Thompson of The Atlantic had a pretty uh, good, concise um, look at the four big theories that people are throwing out. And I'll um, run through those quickly, and then we'll open it up to our fellow panelists, because this is a discussion podcast. Uh, number one, the temporary explanation. It is the election. There are stats in the MMQB that suggest that this is not a foolish thing to say, that actually before um, the five previous presidential elections – the ratings uh, went down uh, every year. The difference this year is that it, it's a much bigger drop. It was 13% down um, as of last week. Um, and in the previous years, it was anywhere between 2 and 9%, the drop. Okay, so explanation number two is um, people are cord cutters, decline of TV ownership and cable viewing. Uh, number three, fragmentation of football across days, screens, and platforms, people watching on their phones, people watching on the Red Zone channel. And number four is what Derek Thompson called the entertainment explanation. It is the twilight 
of a golden age in football, that football is just not going to be as popular ever again as it was the past few years. Um, and then there's the fifth one that he didn't include, which is that people aren't watching because of Colin Kaepernick. Anybody yeah. want to jump in with the their Kaepernick theories? Kaepernick effect, question mark. The Newsbusters uh, is forefronting that one, yes. Yes, it's like the Ferguson effect, but mm -hmm. with Colin it's Kaepernick It's a lot like instead. the Ferguson effect, and that gets to my explanation of what's going on. So when it came out that uh, there was a 10% uptick in murder in actually three quarters of the big cities, uh, people who wanted this to be true about America or uh, relevant about things that were going on pretty much jumped on it and said, see, things are getting worse. And they cited the Ferguson effect. And even those that didn't cite the Ferguson effect said, you know, things really are getting worse and, and it sort of justified the worldview. Now, I think the exact opposite thing, almost with an exact opposite demographic is going on with football. Why is football ratings down 10%? I don't know. It can be a million things, but also in a year or two, it could be totally reversed. But it seems to me that the people who are pointing to this and saying that it's meaningful are mostly the same people who have a moral problem with football, which is a lot of the people we know. And we talk about it on the show. And I think it's a interesting and worthy thing to discuss. I just don't think it's a widespread belief in the culture. And I would say that the biggest explanation probably doesn't have anything to do with football standing outside of the culture. It's the explanation that is true of all sports properties, all television properties, the Olympics, everything in the world that as we become a fractured society with millions of different ways to get information, our attention to the stuff that's on TV and TV networks will wane. Though I could say that, you know, maybe the, just all the downerism of, of, uh, head trauma has taken its toll. And then maybe later, but I'll stop talking now. I could talk about how actually to me, watching football games has not, has not been as entertaining this year for a number of reasons, though. I don't know that that's the effect, but we could maybe talk about the entertainment of football kind of waning this year. Yeah. They, there have been a lot of bad games this mm -hmm. year. And I think there've been a lot of bad games and in primetime slots on the most prominent uh, NFL programs, Monday night, Sunday night, uh, particularly. And it is something that transcends football. Uh, the, the Ken Early, our friend from across the Atlantic, uh, has a, just wrote a piece about declining ratings in the Premier League. They're down like up to almost 20% so far this season. And Ken theorizes, and, and this is certainly a, a, applicable across sports, is that the way we consume products is changing. And the money line in Ken's piece is it has become possible to watch nothing and yet miss nothing. We do not need to tune in to the actual live telecast of a game in order to enjoy what the athletes do, um, enjoy the the result or the the competition, the closeness of the game, the excitement, um, or take from it what we want to take from it, whether that's how our fantasy players did or just the highlights of the team that we support winning or losing. Yeah, I learned something from the Wall Street Journal article, which is that Nielsen is rolling out something called total audience measurement um, for next year, which will attempt to for. yeah more accurately represent how people watch things circa the 21st right. century. And you know that's coming because the, the leagues need this. 
because they need to go back to advertisers and say, no, 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 no. Our ratings aren't actually down. The number of viewers isn't actually down. It's only down in this antiquated metric that we use. But in the new metric that accounts for people consuming snippets of the game on various different platforms, we're still getting that many eyeballs and we just need to get deliver the ads better to them so we don't want to cut your ad rates. Yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing here is that for all the things that Mike's that you said, which are are definitely true about the the different ways people consume things now, the NFL was able to successfully sell for years beyond what any other kind of entertainment purveyor was able to sell. That they were immune from those trends, and that's why there are these multi billion dollar deals. That's why um, Sunday Night Football, something like six hundred grand plus for a spot. It's the most expensive 30-second commercial time in all of television. And so even though this is an incredibly small sample, even though it is an election year, um, there is it, – it does still seem like a milestone and that the NFL is susceptible to the same kind of gravity that everybody else is susceptible to. Um, so I think it is worth marking – this moment. But the one thing that I would say to kind of push back against myself a little bit is that the games at the start of this year have been quite poor. Yes. Um, and the very yeah. first game Monday was night, great. The, the, <laughs> the Carolina Broncos game. And then after that, yeah. But if you look by network, it's 17% down on Monday night football. And the Monday night football schedule, I mean, exemplified by the Bucks Panthers game where Cam Newton wasn't playing and um, it, it was, you know, one of the worst games of the season and, you know, not just on, on Monday Night Football and and very few people watched it. Well, it was a close um, game so, too. I mean, it came down to the last two minutes and it was still, if it's still one of the <laughs> worst games as well as being a close game, that tells you something. Sunday Night Football was down 13%. Thursday Night Football down 15%. But on the Sunday afternoon games, CBS and Fox only down 3%. So actually, when I first started looking into this, my assumption was that it was down everywhere. So that's actually telling and interesting that it's not down on Sunday afternoons. And that has really kind of the, been the genius of the NFL, right, is that you have all of these games on at the same time. And Sunday afternoons is just this kind of like communal fan experience. Everybody's following their fantasy teams. Everybody's getting together to watch these games. And that seems to be relatively immune from this, whether it's a temporary blip Mm -hmm. or um, a more longstanding one. And the Trump effect could be real. I mean, people maybe are watching CNN or Fox or whatever their deliveries, their preferred delivery system is for news at night rather than watching Monday night football or Thursday night football or Sunday night football. But back to the Nielsen thing for a second. So any kind of TV rating, it's an extrapolation. It's an estimate of how many people are watching. And we know based on, you know, measurements of web traffic or, you know, presidential polls that there can be huge errors there. And the NFL to me, and let me know if you uh, agree, either of you, seems like it would be particularly error prone because the ways in which people watch seem so different than kind of traditional 
television, like I was watching on the Red Zone channel on Sunday, that my viewership will not be reflected in the CBS and Fox uh, numbers from this Sunday. People get together and watch in bars. That is kind of notoriously difficult to measure. People get together and watch at each other's houses um, and people watch on their phones. Like, that seems legit to me. And that makes it even more remarkable that the ratings for just regular linear TV for the NFL have been so consistent in previous years. I'll give you a couple other data points. One is uh, Richard Deitch in January 10th of 2016 had an article, Why There is No Ceiling in Near Future for NFL Ratings. And Deitch is not a cheerleader for the NFL. I think he calls it. He's not a Darren Ravel type. And I guess he got it wrong. It would seem that maybe last year was a ceiling, but he goes through all the different networks ratings and talked about how they were either all the highest or the second highest. This was written after the Bengals-Pittsburgh game, and that's what stuck out to me. First of all, I think all all these trends can be reversed, and it's we're really talking about small differences. Like Josh, when you said on the Sunday afternoon games, the ratings haven't really been down. To me, that is more the representative sample. So really, a bad game or two six weeks into the season can really show up uh, on Monday right. night football and mm-hmm. Sunday night football when you're talking about an average of all the games has been down a little bit. I'll also throw out there that as the economy is bad and people can't spend money on other entertainment options, the free option almost entirely free option, you know, but for if you're a cable subscriber and get, getting those ESPN games of football is really attractive. Now, if you look at the 2015 statistics, the economy is getting a lot better. It's not going gangbusters, but we're not talking about a drop off the cliff of NFL ratings. And another factor is, so even if that accounts for a tiny percentage of it, maybe this one does too. I think daily fantasy sports has been hurt. Don Van Atta wrote about this pretty convincingly in ESPN, the magazine, and daily fantasy play has gone down. And so I think that that could, in a little way, affect the ratings. And then overall, I do think, this is the one that's really hard to prove. I do think that upon Peyton Manning's retirement, you just have fewer compelling teams. And the teams that we thought would be compelling, like Carolina, maybe last year we didn't believe it, but when they go 15-1, and you come into this year saying, all right, well, there's a team I'm going to monitor, and they might not make the playoffs this year. Last year, the Cardinals were like, I don't believe in the Cardinals, and then they did well. So you come in this year, and you're like, all right, maybe that's a team we'll need to uh, get behind, and they're terrible. So there are a couple of teams, like you definitely want to watch the Patriots, and you probably want to watch the Steelers, but other teams that should be The Cowboys, because of their good rookies, are, are interesting. Right, right. So there are the compelling stories, but I think there are fewer of them. And then there's this whole morass of teams that seem interchangeable. And the last thing, this is really... I mean, I don't even know if I believe this, but watching these, <laughs> watching these games, it does seem like the refereeing can annoy certain people and that so many games hinge on who inadvertently gets a hand in a quarterback's face mask or when the refs decide that there's a pass interference why that would affect ratings i don't know the capriciousness effect i guess maybe it could maybe that's stripping away 0.5% of the audience i don't know but i think all of this stuff is cumulative and i think just as the Technological changes and social media changes are kind of a canary in the coal mine indicator for football vis-a-vis television. The way the game is played and the way people think about the game is a gradually evolving thing. So if we are more annoyed with interminable stoppages in play or overly bureaucratic 
uh, refereeing of games. That's also a policing off. of celebrations. And I was just going to say, also policing of celebrations. Our friend Dan Steinberg has a terrific column in today's Washington Post that was pegged to Vernon Davis on, of the uh, the Washington football team getting an excessive celebration penalty after scoring his first touchdown in two years on Sunday because he shot the football like a basketball. He took a <laughs> jump shot. And, so Brandon and got flagged. Brandon Cooks of the Saints had a celebration where he took an arrow out of a quiver and shot it out of a bow, and the NFL told him he couldn't do that anymore. No. So when he scored uh, on Sunday, he took the arrow out and just that was it. <laughs> He just, just didn't shoot it. Yeah. Steinberg pointed out that uh, Odell Beckham triple jumped in the end zone. So the track events are okay, but archery, not okay. And the NFL also banned teams from posting on social media during games, which a couple of, of teams lampooned by putting up like electric football highlights. There does seem to be a kind of protectionism there and not wanting to balkanize mm-hmm. the audience that is – a sign, if not of an empire in decline, it just reminds me of like the newspaper business where like, we've got to protect this like big pie because we have these billion dollar TV deals. And we've got the, you know, we've got this deal with Twitter and we, they're the exclusive rights holder on on highlights, like any kind of, you know, system or proposal or anything that makes it harder for fans to find highlights during games just seems incredibly short-sighted and stupid. And I think that even if if the teams are pointing out publicly that it's short-sighted and stupid, that means it's really short-sighted and stupid. Right. That's a business proposition. But I think that the overarching tight assery that defines the NFL is becoming out of step with the way people think, particularly younger people think. And I'll throw this last one out there. I'll channel my- Kaepernick effect. Yeah, Kaepernick (laughs) effect. I'll channel my inner (laughs) WEEI host- This is what you get when you ban your number one star for the first four weeks of the season. Hello, no Brady. Ratings are down. Done. I think there's a Rasmussen poll where, and I don't have Nate Silver here telling me if this Mm -hmm. is an A plus or a C minus. Well, as long as it's not the USC Annenberg, but go ahead. Um, Saying that one third of respondents said that they're less likely to watch games because of the anthem protests. That would be outlier poll. It just seems incredibly, incredibly (laughs) hard to believe. I don't buy it. Hashtag boycott NFL. Boycott H-U-A-L. Most people just watch for the anthem. They don't even stay for the game. But once you got their eyeball clicks measured, that's fine. Most people aren't even fans of football. They just love anthems and flyovers, especially in domes. And flags. Mm -hmm. You would fall into that category. Some, Some Americans like kneeling. And so those will be sucked in. But they have something else to do on Sunday if they like kneeling. Church. Church. It's not dirty. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The show Pitch, which premiered on Fox last month, is what those of us who are not in the business but want to sound like we're in the business call high concept. 
The concept here is the first woman athlete to make it to the upper echelon, the majors of one of the big North American pro sports leagues. That athlete is a baseball pitcher. She's named Jenny Baker. She's a starter for the San Diego Padres. She's assigned number 43. That's one higher than Jackie Robinson. In the first episode, and this is a spoiler alert for those of you who have not seen the show. It's a spoiler from a month ago about a fictional universe. Our hero has a very bad first start, but then she pulls herself together by the end of the 45-minute episode. Here's a clip. You'll hear Fox announcers Joe Buck and John Smoltz. You'll hear the actress Kylie Bunbury as Jenny Baker. And you'll hear Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell and the dad from The Wonder Years who play the Padres star catcher and their crusty old manager, respectively. Here's the clip. Six and a third, eight hits, three runs, five strikeouts. You know, if the bullpen holds this lead, she'll get the win. What a gutty performance. And off her last start, it might as well have been a no-hitter, Joe. I can get out of it. She's done. I said I can go another. And I decided otherwise. And I'm still a skipper here. Am I not, Baker? Yes, sir. Because there's been some confusion about that lately. And as long as you're going to be sticking around, I'd like some order restored in my damn clubhouse. Good job, Rook. We'll take it from here. We'll take your bow. She doesn't like the ass slapping. Good to know. Just listen to this crowd. Welcome to the big leagues, Jenny. We've been waiting for you. Okay, I have to say, Stefan, just listening to that clip, the show is better than that clip. That clip made the show seem kind of bad and cheesy. It is a little cheesy. Joe Buck. Joe Buck is in it like kind of a lot. Um, yeah, the, the the Fox crossover is very present. Anyway, the project has been gestating for a very long time. A guy named Rick Singer wrote it in the 1990s, and he said he was inspired by watching Isla Borders, um, who made her debut in the Northern League, the independent league that Stefan wrote about in his book, Wild and Outside. Uh, Isla Borders pitched for the St. Paul Saints, the Duluth Superior Dukes, the Madison Black Wolf, and the Zion Pioneers from 1997 to 2000. She's now a firefighter and paramedic in Oregon. She's also our guest today, Isla Borders. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And you were just telling us before we hit record on this that you're nervous to watch the show. Why are you nervous to, to watch Pitch? Uh, two reasons. Uh, one, I'm really critical. I mean, I'm being so critical of it and be watching it. It's kind of like how us firefighters watch Chicago Fire. You know, we'll sit there and we critique it so bad. And I just didn't want to do that. And then the next one was it brings back a lot of memories. And I have very fond memories, and then I have some other memories that just are not good, and it brings all that back up, and I'm a little nervous about that. Well, I think the show does touch on all those, as you you would expect it to do. Um, There is the inherent initial sexism and bias in the clubhouse, that she doesn't belong there, that she's not good enough, that she's been passed through the system because she's a woman and will sell tickets and bring fans and and viewers uh, to, to the game. 
Um, so that all is absolutely present. And, and in your case, Isla, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your journey to the low minor leagues was like? Uh, you pitched in high school, you pitched in college. What was it like? You know, how did you get the opportunity with the St. Paul Saints, the team that I am very familiar with, and Mike Veck, a guy uh, that I'm also very familiar with? How did you wind up there? I was very fortunate that I had a family, a father especially, that supported me. And so I think it's really important if a girl is to make it in the major league that you start at Little League. And I played Little League, uh, played high school baseball, and then I was very lucky and got a full-ride scholarship to play men's college baseball. Played there, and then I was looking. I just wanted to be taken as a legitimate baseball player. And my dream was to make the major leagues, just like any other guy, girl, whatever. It's just that's the top, and that's where I wanted to go. And I wanted to go somewhere where people could say, you didn't go there just to sell tickets. And so I looked at the Saints, and they had their next three years. I don't know how they did this, but they sold out every single game. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is perfect. If I can win a spot there and get a spot, then nobody could say I was signed to sell more tickets because they've already sold out every single game. And so I contacted them, and one of their scouts, Barry Moss, he came and watched me pitch at a game, and uh, he was – obviously impressed enough, and he said, okay, we would we would like for you to come and try out, but we're not going to give you a contract. We want you to win it. And so I was invited to St. Paul. I went there like May 10th of 1997, I mm-hmm. think. Yes. And um, it was me, and I think, I'm guessing I might be off by one or two, uh, like 18 guys and myself, and it was, I think we kept... 10 on our roster, maybe 11. And um, we battled it out after two and a half weeks. Uh, Marty Scott, the manager at the time, said, hey, you, you beat everybody out. We're signing you to a contract. And I just can't explain how that was. But I was like, yes, I've won. I made professional baseball. Two, I beat people out. And then three, nobody could say anything because all the tickets were sold. That's why I was very fortunate to go to the Saints, and that's how that happened. So as Stefan was referencing earlier, like a lot of the drama, this is a kind of a workplace drama. Um, John Koblen, in his piece in the New York Times, he quoted someone as comparing pitch to the West Wing. It's just a very high-profile, kind of famous work environment. Um, But there are all these issues that come up around resentment, of the men on the team around her kind of being asked to be a representative of all women and to speak out on social issues. And then all these things about how, you know, she's her manager says that she's like just a pretty face and there's a controversy around that. Um, So it's a great kind of way to bring in all of these big kind of cultural, social issues into an, hour-long drama. And just based on reading about you, it seems like authentic that these are things that actually came up around you. Definitely. And I I learned a lot. Actually, the people that were really against me were some, uh, were women. And they were just so afraid because they're like, okay, you're representing us. And if you go out there and fail, you're failing all of us. And I got a lot of pressure from uh, women's sports, women's support groups, and um, they were calling me saying that, or then they were angry that I wasn't out there pushing women's rights. 
you know, and um, then being the face for certain things. And I'm like, wait a second here. I am, I am a baseball player. This is what I want to, you know, this is my goal. This is what I want to do. I need to try to win some respect from my peers. And it was really hard because you want to help out and do certain things, but then it's like you need to respect and, and fit in with the guys also. So um, in my college years, I did a lot of interviews and I created a lot of resentment from my teammates. And so I learned from that. And when I went into pro ball, I kind of shied away from the media, which Mike Vec was fine with, and worked on just baseball and um, integrating with the guys. And I really got the respect that way. So it, it is a little 50-50. Like Jenny Baker and Pitch, you had a rough first outing. Um, yeah. did, how much of that would you attribute to being nervous that you were the first female professional pitcher ever? It had to do with anger, to tell you the truth. Um, I had to learn how to combat that. I was really, the first batter that was up, I threw him a straight change, and he hit a ground ball to shortstop, turned a double play, and I thought we were out of the inning. And um, so nobody knew that, but that was the first pitch. He hit a ground ball, we turned a double play. We were all going back to the dugout, but the the umpire called a botic on me. And so... The guy got second base, and the other guy that just got out was up at bat again. And I was—I let my emotions come over me, and I was really pissed off. And um, I let that take over, and then I ended up having a bad inning then where they got hit, so I got some walks. And luckily, like I said, I had amazing coaches with tons of experience. And Barry Moss came out there to me, and he goes, okay, we're pulling you. He goes, but we are putting you back in tomorrow, no matter what. He goes, you got to get back in there. You got to get your confidence up. He goes, so be prepared and be ready. He goes, you got to let this go, and you're coming back in tomorrow. I said, okay. I so the, that's kind of what happened. And the environment is so important, I think, for a situation like Lars, because you were a pioneer. And Mike Vec, son of Bill Vec, the baseball showman from the 40s and 50s and 60s with the Chicago teams and elsewhere. And Mike developed his same um, uh, approach to baseball in St. Paul, trying to make the game fun. He had a pig that delivered baseballs to the mound. <laughs> there were barber. There was a barber in the stands and a nun giving massages. And he would uh, go for the sort of uh, elaborate or interesting signing that would get media attention. So media was very much at the forefront of Mike's mind, but at the same time, he surrounded himself on the team with real baseball people, like you said. And I think that must have helped ease the the transition and sort of take some of the pressure off. It was remarkable. Like I said, I'm very blessed. I've met really good people at the right time. And Mike was definitely Mike, Marty, and Barry. Mike coming there right when I got to the field, um, he met with me. We took a walk around the parking lot and he's like, Hey, I'm here to support you. I am here for you. You know, he goes, I'm not going to make you do interviews. He goes, you do what you want to do. He goes, you're here to win a spot. And, um, I'll never forget that. And then, like I said, Marty with, uh, the manager at the time and Barry Moss, the one that came out and scouted me, who was the hitting coach, uh, were extremely supportive and very helpful with certain things. How does the hyper-masculine atmosphere of the baseball clubhouse, or baseball clubhouses, you've been in a few, compare with uh, your job in the firehouse? Because, well, at least in New York, this is one of the most male-dominated careers. I don't know what the uh, state of 
Oregon is like, like, but uh, I, if I could ask you to compare those two milieus. Yeah, going to the Friday Friday was such an easy transition. I mean, um, I kind of joke with some of my friends that I kind of feel like I have a man's personality um, because, you know, I was raised by my dad and then I was around guys my entire life. So I kind of feel like sometimes I, I communicate and even have a, a little bit of a personality because that's what I've been around. But baseball was extremely harsh. <laughs> I have a book coming out and it says a lot of funny things that I think are absolutely hilarious. And then some things that you're just like, oh my gosh, that's taking it way beyond. And um, it prepared me for the fire department. But the fire department now, um, you know, I've been in it for 11 years. When I first started out, it was kind of similar to baseball. But now it's more politically correct and more friendly and less harsh on probationary firefighters. But baseball, I mean, that was extremely hard to break into. And I had to learn as I went, you know, uh, being the first one in there, I was trying to do certain things to show the guys, hey, I'm not here, you know, for all the media. I'm not here to break up your routine. I just want to fit in and play the game. And then I think as soon as they see that, they're like, oh, okay, she's just like one of us. And then it eases up a lot. So what were some examples? Like what's an example of a funny thing that happened when you're in baseball? And what's an example of something that happened to you that wasn't funny? Well, I think this is funny. It's completely inappropriate. But this is what I mean as far as not only do you have to have the talent, you have to have the correct personality to get along. And one was I didn't go into their locker room. I really just didn't want to mess things up for them. So I would go into the umpire's locker or the women's locker, and I would let the guys have their own thing. And then if we had a meeting, you know, they would say housekeeping, and I would come in and then be there. But at one point, one of the guys came out and says, hey, George wants to see you. And that's George Mitterwall, my manager at the time. I'm like, all right. So I came in there, and this guy uh, was completely butt naked, and he had hangers on his penis. <laughs> and he came up to me with some hangers, and he's like, how many do you think that I can fit on my penis? Uh-huh. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah, I was joking with him. And I go, I don't know. Let's about nine? You know, I just grabbed Reminder, this is the I, funny this is the funny one. <laughs> yeah, I grabbed the hangers, started putting it on his penis, and all the guys, their eyes were just like, Oh my God. But what happened, that was the turning point for me, is you know, I put the hangers on, I'm like, All right, you guys got me, ha 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 and I went back out to the field and after that they're like, Oh my god, she didn't she didn't report us. She didn't flinch. She was laughing. You know, she's, that was my initiation. Okay, she's cool. And they treated me like one of their own after that. Wow. So, and I thought, that, I thought your current job would be baptism by fire. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's one that to me is, is, it's funny, but not funny. Not that funny. And it shows that. <laughs> Um, they're going to push you at first. And if you have the correct attitude, and I'm not saying to go along with certain things that are bad. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that. I'm just telling you what my experience was at that time. Well, it, it's evidence of what a difficult position you're being put in and kind of having to make these choices probably every minute of every day of how do I react to 
you know, the, being the first person, not having a template. I mean, that's just an incredibly difficult decision of what to do in that moment. And you obviously did something that ended up working for you and maybe somebody else would have done something different. Yeah. So that would be that. Locker room talk, everybody. Uh, Isla, do you wish you had gotten a chance to, to, to sign with an affiliated major league team? And did that ever feel like it was possible for you? Yeah, that's what happened. Um, we were talking to the Cincinnati Reds. That's when Marge Schott was around at that time. She even made a comment about wanting to get a female in there. And we were talking with them, and we thought it was going to happen after my year with Madison. Because they're like, I think I had 31 or 32 innings in. Uh, my ERA was 1.67. It was my third year. Um, so I felt like, okay, I, I'm on my third year now. And I showed that I could uh, be productive. And I'm playing in a, t- in a league that they kind of say it's a uh, uh, high A pitching, double A hitting. Mm-hmm. So it's a very good hitting league. And we were all prepared for that. And it ended up not happening. I got a call saying that, you know, the media is going to be way too crazy. It's going to take away from baseball and spring training it's just going to be about that and they decided not to do that and um unfortunately then after that i i was just like in my head i'm never going to get a shot if i did the best that i could and i thought i produced good numbers and i still didn't get a shot i felt like i reached my limit of ever getting a shot oh my god you were one and oh with a era of 1.67 15 games 32 innings pitched 33 hits just seven runs, six earned runs. Yeah. Pretty good numbers. Yeah. So I, I mean, that must have been gratifying on its own, but then, right, facing that realization that that at the time, and this is 1999, which doesn't feel like that long ago, but I think psychologically or socially, I think if a, if a woman in that league in the same situation put up those sorts of numbers today, there might be less reluctance yeah. to assign her based on mythical distractions. Yeah, I think so. My best friend at the time, he had tattoos. And anytime he went for a tryout or he went anywhere, he actually wasn't signed because he had tattoos. And now I look at baseball and I'm like, oh my gosh, there are tattoos all over the place. But I remember that, yeah, he he had a height of tattoos. Yeah. All right. So last question. When do you think a tattooed pitcher will finally make it? No. When, what, <laughs> what, are, what do you think about um, having a woman pitch in the major leagues? When do you think it'll happen? Do you think it'll happen? I definitely think it will happen. I think, though, it's got to – I don't think it's somebody that goes and plays baseball and then at 13, this is that they go to softball and they play softball until they're 20 – and then they want to go play baseball at that age. It's it's like any other kid that you see. You got to start when you're young. You got to play, you know, the little league. You got to play high school. You got to play college, and then you know work on all those fundamentals that are baseball. Because softball is so different from baseball, and a lot of people don't get that. I think the female baseball players either going to come from Canada, Japan, or Australia. And the reason why I say that is they're set up over there to where when women play baseball, they don't go into softball. They play baseball throughout their entire life. And they have an outlet um, in the Japanese, I know for sure, uh, for women to play. It's not professional out there, but they have women's leagues out there. 
and it's highly regarded. So I think that's going to be key. And same with Canada. They have baseball out there for women. They have baseball leagues. Australia has that. The women just had the Baseball World Cup, and Japan won it all. So I think it's going to happen, and I think it's going to come, if I had to predict, from Japan. All right, Isla Borders played for the St. Paul Saints, Duluth Superior Dukes, Madison Black Wolf, and the Zion Pioneers. I did not mention earlier that Pioneers is spelled with two Zs mm-hmm. at the end, which is important. She's now a firefighter and paramedic in Oregon. Thank you so much for being on the show, Isla. Thank you. See you guys. Have a good one. You too. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for afterballs, and we've got to make a lot of you know caveats, explanations about who was the first you know woman to pitch in various leagues. So Isla Borders pitched an unaffiliated professional minor league baseball, um, but we got to give credit to some of the other pioneers. Yeah, I, I should have qualified when I said first professional because she wasn't. So. Mamie Peanut Johnson pitched in the Negro Leagues. She was the first uh, woman to do so. She won 33 games. She played with the Indianapolis Clowns, and she had a book uh, called A Strong Right Arm. Isla Borders pitched left, so a strong left arm. Good companion piece. Mm -hmm. I like that. Uh, Mike, what is your Peanut Johnson? So Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for literature. You probably heard about that. Though not on this Slate podcast. On every other one, I'm sure you did, given, you know, especially uh, John Dickerson's love of Bob Dylan. However, so what's the sports connection? Almost none, except for the hurricane, Reuben Hurricane Carter. He could have been the champion of the world. So I'm listening to the song with my sons, and they don't know much from boxing. They say, what do you you mean he could have been the champion of the world? I'm like, well, let's go over his record. So I call up Reuben Hurricane Carter's record. I don't really have, I love that song. And I had years ago done some stories on this. I think I became extra interested when that movie, uh, the Norman Jewison movie came out and they invented this uh, police character who was intent on putting Carter in jail, which was like, I I guess the filmmakers said it was a, um, you know, fictionalized composite. But I think a good argument against that would be that there wasn't one guy who was out to get Reuben Carter. It was the system. And when you invent one guy and make him be the face of evil, you're really doing a disservice to the story. But the reason I was interested in was that one guy's name in the movie was Della Pesca. So I was a little offended. Um, So how good was Reuben Hurricane Carter? Yeah, he did have a championship fight, a championship shot, and we'll get to that in a second. But as I looked up his career, I found that he had 27 wins, 12 losses, and one draw. Now, at a time when a lot of boxers would fight 100 times, 
12 losses isn't that many, but against 27 wins, it's just not a great percentage. He started off like a house on fire, did Ruben, Hurricane, Carter. And the crazy thing about boxing in, you know, before 20 years ago was how often they would box. So in the year 1962 alone, he fought 12 times. He fought uh, on January 19th, on February 14th, on February 28th. So two weeks after, okay, it was a one round a knockout of Tommy Settles at the State Garden in Union City, New Jersey. And then he would also fight his fourth and fifth fights, which occurred on November of 61 and January of 62, were at Gladiators Arena in Tottawa, New Jersey. I had not heard of Gladiators Arena, and upon doing some research, it was built to lure what could have become the professional bowling league. The New York Gladiators bowled there. The league went under and the arena was torn down and replaced by a hotel. So he did pretty well, did Reuben Hurricane Carter. He started off with four wins, had a loss, and then a string of another six wins. And about this time, he began to be noticed, and he began to be ranked by Ring Magazine. And a win against Emil Griffith, a first-round TKO, put him really on the radar. And then he got his title shot against a man who boxed under the name Joey Giardello. And Giardello beat him in a unanimous decision in 15 rounds. Now, the movie depicted Reuben Hurricane Carter as really taking it to Giardello, and Giardello later got upset. How upset? He sued the movie makers because the movie depicted him as getting beat up when Reuben Carter and everyone else there said that Giardello uh, actually won that fight, won it fair and square. Carter himself agreed that Giardello was the rightful victor. And the case was settled out of court. The producers paid the retired champion damages. It was undisclosed how much. And on the DVD version of Hurricane, Norman Jewison made a statement that, quote, Giardello, no doubt, was a great fighter. Reuben Hurricane Carter died a couple years ago, exonerated and made famous in song. Could have been the champion of the world. Yep. Stefan, what is your peanut Johnson? Uh, we had a little crosstalk on the podcast last week about the baseball terms ghost runner and imaginary runner, which refer to playing wiffle ball or stick ball or even baseball with too few players. So there's no base running. So the runners on base are imaginary. If you get a single and you have a man on first, another single advances him to second, a double to third and so on. But depending on home rules or the placement of a hit, a single might advance an imaginary runner from first to third or score him from second, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I believe it was Mike who called them ghost runners. And Josh, I think you were with ghost runners too. And I said, we called them imaginary runners. The disparity, especially between me and Mike is understandable. I grew up in the 1970s in Westchester County, New York, Mike in the 1980s on Long Island. Yeah. Huge regional differences, <laughs> right? Yes. A tri-bar, a, a tri-bar bridge <laughs> worth of differences. Yes. I, I like to think of the Whitestone Bridge per, personally. Okay. Throck, um, uh, you yeah. take your bridge. Yeah. Okay. I, I heard from a few people afterward, regular guy tweeted at me. I have your back on imaginary runners. Jesse Lansner wrote growing up in Brooklyn in the eighties. We also had imaginary runners rather than ghost runners. Political Gab Fest host David Plotz, however, sent a terse email to all of us. Ghost runners was used in the seventies. Matt Dick wrote ghost runner was the term of art in 1970s in Northern Virginia, all of which settles nothing. We should have also nodded, however, to the invisible runner, 
to which Wikipedia gives preference using ghost runner as a synonym. In my hometown, the general term was imaginary runner. As I said, we're going to play this game with imaginary runners. But when an imaginary runner was on base, you'd call him an invisible man, as in invisible man on first, invisible man on second. In Paul Dixon's authoritative Dixon's baseball dictionary, ghost runner gets a full definition, invisible man and imaginary runner also get own place entry, but only as synonyms of ghost runner. Ghost Runner also registers more hits on Google and Google News. And I have to confess, I did find some pretty cool citations for Ghost Runner. After pitching a simulated game during rehab in 2012 with no fielders behind him, Adam Wainwright of the Cardinals talked about one situation. Ghost Runner was on second, he said. Last year, women's soccer star and national anthem kneeler Megan Rapino talked about playing baseball with her twin sister growing up. It was like ghost runner galore. There were ghost players everywhere. But I did find some citations in the imaginary runner's favor. During the 2010 World Series, New York Times writer Ben Spiegel tweeted, love how Renteria fielded that ball and seemed to touch second base before throwing to first in case the imaginary runner was coming at him. But far more significant than the Times is this. The official scoring rules on the official wiffle ball website use the term imaginary runner. Now, given its authority and its coolness, frankly, wiffle ball's preference should be respected. But I'll give you a couple more interesting ghost runner tidbits. First, in the 1930s, a sports writer for the New York Herald Tribune on multiple occasions used ghost runner to refer to a New York Giants player who regularly pinch ran for a teammate. Hogan has just so much speed, and when that is used up, out comes the ghost runner. More recently, Ghost Runner is the title of a 2009 song by the Athens, Georgia alt-rock band Bloodkin. The song is about playing baseball and growing up, and I've got to admit, this does give Ghost Runner the edge. I got a ghost runner spinning on first base in this breaking lot in July. Yeah, my ghost runner always trying to steal too, Josh. May all of your ghost runners be Javier Baez. My ghost runner charges down the line at third trying to induce the balk, which is smart, but it never works. Only when Isla Borders is pitching, though. My ghost runner sometimes falls for the fake throw to third, throw to first thing. My ghost runner's an idiot. <laughs> Josh. Josh, what's your peanut Johnson? So in contrast to the NFL. The Chinese Arena Football League Ooh. is really into elaborate, yeah. fun touchdown celebrations. There are a couple of videos going around this weekend. There was a sword fight with the football. There was a wrestling move, like an elbow drop. And then a, another player came in and did the three count as a referee. There was the Three Stooges style spinning on the floor. They just love to have fun in the Chinese Arena Football League, <laughs> which is a thing. <laughs> Chris Berman is going to retire to China. (laughs) The Chinese Arena Football League is a thing that exists. Uh, Chris Beam, former Slate guy, wrote a piece uh, for the New Republic about uh, football in China a 
couple years ago, um, outdoor football, not the arena version, but now there's an arena league started by some American entrepreneurs. The LA Times had a piece about it. Um, they quoted a security guard, a 46-year-old uh, from China who said, in the past, I just liked watching the commotion, but now I'm starting to understand the rules. No doubt American football will be successful in China. It's such a confrontational sport. No doubt. Can't argue with that. Wait, is this a security guard like hired to work the games? Or you're just telling me say. this fact? <laughs> so, so once you're at every game and forced to watch, you eventually <laughs> figure it out. Great. So based on this Chinese arena league, I was like Googling around a little bit. And I found this website that is an afterballers paradise. <laughs> it's an afterballers grotto. It is AmericanFootballInternational.com, which just has news stories from around the world about uh, various small-timey American football leagues. I'm going to run through a few of them here. In Argentina's Rosario League, just one of several in Argentina, the Orcs defeated the Spartans 6 to nothing in the final regular mm. season game to end the year undefeated. In Austria, the Swarco Raiders defended their title by beating the Graz Giants. In Belgium, the Ostend Pirates beat the Brussels Black Angels. In Czech Republic, the Prague Black Panthers uh, beat the Prague Lions. In Denmark, the Triangle Razorbacks uh, beat Mm. the Copenhagen Towers. In Germany, the Braunschweig New Yorker Lions yeah. beat. <laughs> they, they have a monocle Explain. and a butterfly. <laughs> they have umlauts. <laughs> Eustace Tilly yes. uh, on the field. The most fact-checked Brunsch- <laughs> football team in existence. The Braunschweig New Yorker Lions defeated the Schwabish Hall Unicorns. In Poland, the Wroclaw Panthers beat the Gdynia Seahawks. Did they cover? <laughs> it was 56 to 13. They covered. Yeah. And in Russia, the Moscow Patriots beat their crosstown rival, rivals in the Moscow Derby, the Moscow Spartans. <laughs> they won 12 to 7. So in Russia, there was, uh, I, le- I again learned about this uh, by some light Googling. Uh, there is an effort to recruit Tim Tebow oh, to play God. for a team called <laughs> Please Take Him, called the Black Storm. This is in 2013. There's a website, Russia Beyond the Headlines, reported this. The owner of the Moscow Black Storm, Mikhail Zaltzman, said, "We have offered him a million dollars for two games. I talked with him personally, and he wanted to go." Well, that seems disputable. Uh, the article continues that the plan was for Tebow to fly into Moscow for the semifinal against the Moscow Patriots in the American Football Championship in Russia, comma, sweep the team to victory and then win the final. That's a very well-developed plan. Just one obstacle stands in the way, Zaltzman says, Tebow's agents. They're thinking of using him as a motivational speaker, he said with a sigh. They don't want him to play football. Well, maybe they just had his best interest at heart. So if this whole baseball thing doesn't work out for Tim Tebow, which uh, will not, uh, it will not work out, he maybe has this, uh, this offer in Russia. And the Russia uh, Beyond the Headline story says one thing in, in Russia's favor, no NFL rule stopping him from writing Bible verses on mm. his eye black. Or if he, if he goes to China, he would be free to you know, deliver a baby. If he scores a touchdown, pantomime delivering a baby. Mm-hmm. T-bowing. Cir- circumcising the Highly- football. Mm-hmm. Circumcising the football. Highly- a lot of work, too. 
We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment under rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Oh, now my girlfriend was standing on second base and must be a hundred in the shade. Me and my butter, we don't mind sweating it out. We're gonna clone up on a gate of raid. And we're out of school all summer and I'm swimming at his lazy curve. Oh, it's a single line past the pawpaw trees in my door.